Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Jeremy Rudd with me. Welcome to the Grow CFO show, Jeremy. Hello, pleased to be here. Excellent, excellent. Jeremy, Jeremy, tell me a little bit about you. Okay, well, um, I'm a chartered accountant, but uh, don't hold that against me like uh, a lot of people do. Uh, I've always enjoyed business and always enjoyed the concept of it. And I think that probably goes back to uh, when I was a wee boy that uh, instead of talking about football around the dinner table at night, uh, we used to talk about the family business. Uh, My father had a, a business in the Northeast. And so that culture came to me from a very early age. So always enjoyed it, always passionate about business and always enjoyed talking about it. Entrepreneurially, my first role was as an ice cream salesman. I uh, rented an ice cream van off some Italians in uh, Darlington. They said, uh, fine, here's the van, here's your product, go out and sell. and. that really taught me a lot about uh, territory, about guarding your your pitch, getting on with other salespeople. Because uh, being naive, I drove up to a school on the time when they came out at the end of classes thinking this would be a great sale, and it was. But when we got back to the depot at night, I had several threats of broken legs. <laughs> oh, that's what happens when you start working for the mafia. <laughs> So that was my first entrepreneurial experience, but um, we'll come up to my book later, but uh, there's an example in there of how to maximize your, your margin on selling ice cream. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. So, Jeremy, your, your, your background for the, the family business, you've had a job of, as an ice cream salesman. Was that before or after qualifying as an accountant? No, that was that was early days. That's when I was still doing my A levels. Actually, I then went into a small private practice, a four partnership practice, and again in Darlington, it was you know really great. I didn't want to go to university. I was in a hurry to get on and get this qualification so I could go out into the big world. And in those days, you didn't need to do that. Although I went to Teesside Polytechnic, which is now Teesside University, of course. Well, it was a small practice. We did everything from working men's clubs, the audits, to vets, to solicitors, to small and large family businesses. So it wasn't a traditional tick and paste apprenticeship. It was uh, getting into the guts and getting to get the feel for businesses. And that sounds very much like my route to qualification. And I qualified with BDO Binder Hamlin in Newcastle. But that had arisen by being an amalgamation of a a couple of local small firms who had then joined the national outfit of Binder Hamlin. But most of the clients, I'd say 90% of the clients, were from those original two small firms. And yes, we got the big national audit of, say, associate tyre specialists and one or two others where we did the local bit of those but most of it was you turned up at the small family company you had to prepare the accounts 
you then had to do the tax comps. You then had to delve a little bit into the books and records and tick a few things to say you'd done an audit. Yep. And you really learned a lot. Because uh, those days, there wasn't a computer in sight. It was all manual. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I forgot to mention, of course, we did some farmers as well, which normally consists of getting a box of uh, invoices presented to you, and you had to create the accounts from that. So uh, a huge variety. Uh, I've got one worse than that, Jeremy. I, I can remember the, the box that came in from the Indian restaurant, and there was at least a month's worth of paperwork missing which, of course, we went back and asked for, and there's a lot of head-scratching, and, oh, there was a fire. And, of course, you then had to make up what went on in that month as best you could from bank statements you'd managed to recover and whatever. I think the technical phrase is incomplete records. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, but yeah, a similar experience. I had to find where the records were uh, destroyed for one reason or another. I can't remember now. But literally doing a balance sheet audit, a balance sheet, reconciliation at the end of the year and the profit was the the difference between the opening balance sheet and that so it was it was really testing the skill of getting to know business and to get to know what the drivers are and uh, what the enjoyment is really of uh, finding out what is the the bottom line yeah and i I think that, that sort of experience we probably learned an awful lot that the apprentices of today if I can call them that, probably miss out on. It's, yeah. it's useful, useful experience. But so you've qualified. What came next? Qualified and then wanted to get out into the, the big wide world and to see how big businesses actually worked. So uh, there was a company called Metalbox in those days that was the third largest in the UK. I got the job as an internal auditor for the South region, which covered 27 factories from Poole in Dorset to Bradford up north. So, uh, again, it was a, a big eye-opener to go into these, into these factories and to uh, understand them and to, to learn the difference between the smaller business that I'd been used to and what was going on there. And, of course, what did I find out is... They're exactly the same, just with bigger, more noughts and more problems. Yeah, and I, I had a very similar step into industry as you did. I actually moved into your original part of the world, not far from Darlington, to Billingham, and joined ICI Fertilisers Division as an internal auditor. And uh, no, it wasn't that much different. One of the very first things I did was a trip to Devon and Cornwall to go and trip, count bags of fertilisers in farmhouses farmers warehouses or haulage companies warehouses that are acting as distribution points for us wasn't an awful lot different than the stock checking in the small business yeah absolutely yeah and um yeah so i did that for a couple of years in so the head office was in reading it had a state-of-the-art new head office there and uh, it was all open plan so i went and did an audit of their <laughs> the, the employee social club as it was then and then immediately afterwards, went up to uh, Bradford to do an audit of their machine building factory. And uh, it always uh, was rather bizarre that the profit that the factory made was the equivalent to how much they spent on fresh coffee at head office. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we've, we've got to have a factory that does produce stuff that we can sell so we can afford the coffee bill. <laughs> yes, indeed. 
<laughs> so that was that was. Uh, Is that 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 uh, the factory didn't make much money, or head office spent far too much on coffee? <laughs> I think there was uh, a variety of reasons. It was a uh, definitely the industrial attribute of making machines was not just making the profit at the end of the day, but how they could export those to other of their factories around the world. Mm. Yeah. And I, I guess once you go in and look at a, a factory like that, you start picking up some great experience of, of associating cost with activity. Yeah. With goes on on the factory floor. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that was Metalbox. Again, enjoyed it, but it was always doing things after the event. So it was auditing stuff that had already happened. And I wanted to put where my mouth was and actually go and do something where I could be positive beforehand. And I went and joined a, a consultancy company in London, a very old-fashioned one called Aura and Boss, one of the first around. I joined just after they stopped wearing bowler hats. But they were great. They were led by engineers, and I was the only accountant on board. And the reason they got an accountant was because one of their clients uh, wanted to introduce a um, capital investment appraisal scheme in the business. So that's how I got the job, which uh, was fascinating. And the reason that it developed from there into a more comprehensive system was the company was uh, Matchbox Toys, Lesney Products. Yeah. They had a, an international marketing arm and they had the manufacturing arm in the UK and they had a central head office, but they didn't consolidate their accounts. They didn't have a chief financial officer that we know and love now. And they had very strong personalities on the either side of the business, one in manufacturing, one in the marketing. And they just set up the marketing one to conquer the world. And instead of using agencies and so on to sell the products, this was a company, this was going to set up around the world to sell the product. And they could never agree on the transfer price between the two. And there was nobody in the middle to hold them together. So naturally, manufacturing did their accounts with their view on the transfer price and international marketing did it on their view and both of them were making fantastic profits however they weren't making a profit and cash was telling the true story that they were very fast uh, going out of business which they did in the end i'm afraid to say mm, i remember that company very well actually yeah but uh, that just shows the the role that the cfo's got as the the referee between two companies that's, the, that's the, vital, the vital role that I see of CFO in business these days is being the absolute owner of those numbers. And regardless of what the strong personalities in each of the divisions may view, the CFO is the arbiter of the real result and has to be dominant in, in doing that. Yeah. It's a lonely place as well in that situation, but you know it's an important place to be. Yeah, and that, that's one of the reasons that Grow CFO exists, that we recognise the role of the CFO can sometimes be lonely and you need a community of peers that you can share with, and so, so important. Yeah. 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 So, Jeremy, we're consulting, we're, we're dealing with Matchbox and, and yeah. 
What's next? Yeah, the, well, the consulting lasted a long time. I went into businesses as varied as tanneries and chocolate biscuit manufacturers, which you can see a bit of evidence of that in my book. Uh, <laughs> uh, paint factories, IBM, I did a huge job for IBM introducing sales fulfillment process across Europe, breaking down the barriers between all of the businesses and all the processes to make sure that everybody in the company understood that once you got the order, that wasn't the end of it. It actually went into production, into distribution of it, into installing it, to catching the cash as it comes into the bank. So that was this wholesale fulfillment process, which was unheard of in those days. Yeah. And it was to get the focus on making sure that that was a smart and efficient way of doing business. And it was we were breaking down barriers between individual countries. So up until then, each country had been doing their own thing. And it was uh, breaking down barriers between uh, different disciplines. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely. And when you think about that, it, I, I just think now it's, it's fairly commonplace that you have a purchase-to-pay process or a sales-to-receipt process. And yeah. they're the bread and butter of what you would look at and process map as you're, you're talking to clients about process yeah. improvement, you're talking about shared services and all of that sort of stuff. And it's interesting to see you right at the, the front end of that <laughs> sort of rationalization. Fantastic experience, Jeremy. Indeed. Yeah. So at that stage, I decided to uh, bring my finance expertise back together with the change management, which I'd done through consultancy, and start becoming a, an FD CFO uh, across businesses in the UK, sometimes as line management on the payroll, sometimes as interim finance directors, but all with a, a common theme. All of my roles were common themes was going into businesses, going through change and helping improve performance. Yeah. yeah. So how important do you think the change management skill is to the CFO? I think it's vital because you've got to be on top of the game at all the time. You're the evangelist talking about how to improve performance. You've got businesses change forever. You've got to be on top of that all the time, reassessing all of the processes, all of the product performance, all of the distribution elements, it all comes together. And the CFO is in a, a unique position right in the middle to see the efficiency of that and drive the efficiency, in my opinion. Yeah. Your traditional accounting skills are great in that position, Jeremy. They're used to dealing with the data, analysing the data, interpreting it, and saying, okay, we've been doing X, we now need to do Y. We, here's the changes we've got to make. But the next part of it is taking people along on the journey with you. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I see the CFO role, and this is a mantra I always take and took with me to new roles, is it's threefold. One and the most important thing is the balance sheet. I call it the balance sheet making sure that you are absolutely committed to understanding every item in that balance sheet. There's so much variance that you can make to a company's business by losing control of any element of the balance sheet. So that, to me, the CFO's role is to be absolutely sure 
that the balance sheet is 100% correct. Every line item, the fixed assets or accruals or whatever, it's that is the first and foremost responsibility, in my opinion, of uh, the CFO. You know, if everything is right in the balance sheet, it means you're complying with your statutory requirements, making sure your control accounts are right. You can see what the your customers or clients are doing because you keep a, a view on the debtor's number, which also always transmits happiness or satisfaction with you as a supplier to those customers. So that, to me, is the fundamental responsibility of the CFO, and that's the thing that I always hit on when I first go into a company. It's not the most easy transition because often you will find elements within the balance sheet that are not what they should be. So you're already hammering against the door of saying something needs to improve here. But you very quickly find out the customers you've got a problem with. Yep, absolutely. Uh, You're very quickly exposed to the cash flow of the company. Cash nearly always being more important than profit. Cash is king, of course, and it never lies. Yeah. And And so... So the balance sheet there as well. You'd be you'd be exposed to straight away. Sorry, I missed that last. Liabilities that you're exposed to will be will be revealed straight away. Yes, they will indeed. Yeah. So it's interesting that again, just saying about the CFO's role being a lonely place. It is the only position on the board of directors or the C-suite. That gets their jobs checked once a year, you know, through the audit process. All the other directors doing their roles, there's no formal checking on there. So right. we have this burden to bear, and we know that there's somebody uh, overlooking our shoulder. Now we shouldn't be worried about that, of course, but it's a point I make to all the peers in the business that you get on and do your business, and nobody's checking you, but I am. So therefore, through me the auditors are checking you. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you only can get that. You can only get that relationship if you're doing all three of what, to me, is the key elements of the CFO. It's getting the balance sheet right. It's getting the processes right to enable you to achieve that satisfactory balance sheet. And then it's the third element, which could be called value creation or it could be called evangelism, or anything like that. It's been the sponsor to enlightening or uh, peers, or it's to always help them understand the performance of the business. There's no point suddenly issuing a set of accounts and saying, oh gosh, we made a loss of 100,000 last month, and end of story. What the important thing to me is working with your peer group and helping them understand, actually, it's that's not the truth or full story, because you can get out, uh, you can look at this element of the business, which is making a a big element of profit, and it's increased this month. This element has gone down because of X, Y, and Z. So let's keep the focus right. Let's not just bang everybody on the head because performance isn't what it seems to be. I'd rather be a step ahead of that. And rather than saying, oh, we lost 100,000 pounds last month, I'd like to have thought that maybe a month or six weeks previous you'd be saying to the business look if we keep down the course that we're going on we're going to lose a hundred thousand pounds next month what are we going to do about it yeah, you're absolutely right Gavin. 
throughout the whole business planning process, you're right, you need that. The yeah. point I was making was talk. the CFO is in the position where they must engage with their peers. They must engage and help them enjoy the numbers, to being able to pull the levers and see what happens if you do that. Mm. Mm. So, Jeremy, with all, all of that experience, you know, if you're working with a, a relatively recently appointed CFO, somebody who hasn't been a CFO very long, what what sort of skills do you think you can help them develop? What I take with me when I do mentor people is helping them get the confidence that they are in this unique position and they should be asking the question why. That's, that's always to me is the, the key point. Ask why. Whatever the question is, ask why. Whatever the statement is, ask why. Always delve into the reasoning and try to understand the business better than the people telling it to you. So it, it's getting that consciousness of the, I used it before, the, the drivers of the business. Try and understand that and, and get that. If you don't have the resource in-house that drives that, brings it forward, then don't be afraid to get somebody in just to focus on specific points. Don't be the, the typical CFO that says no to everything. Be the creative one who says, well, if you do this, as you're saying, what are the implications across the rest of the business? And here's somebody who can help you find that out. So always be willing and able and confident enough to help your peers delve into that information. Yeah. Effectively, you're, I suppose you're, you're showing them the options. Yes, indeed. Rather than giving them a recommendation. Absolutely. If you tell them to do something, they'll push back. If you show them why it's happening, you get their engagement. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Brilliant. So, Jeremy, what, what got you to the position that you're being a mentor these days? As I said, right at the beginning of the conversation, I enjoy business. Yeah. passionate about it. I enjoy talking to people about it. I enjoy helping people in the business. And that is why I do it, because I can see through my help with these people is to get them enjoying business, to get them to pass on that enjoyment, because best performance is created in a happy environment. Definitely, agree with, that. Definitely agree with that. Now, I've got sitting on the desk beside me uh, the book that you referred to earlier. Four Magic Steps to Double Profit. <laughs> Come on. What are the four magic steps to double profit, Jeremy? Well, I'll show a picture because you didn't hand, hold yours up. Well, I can hold mine up as well just to prove that I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, first thing I'd like to say is this is not a finance book that you'll, you'll find anywhere else. It features... Joe, a young girl setting up a business, it features Squawk, a big, ugly bird who uh, helps her in, in doing that. It's a story that features every element of business process, but it's done in a storyline that's, I'll use this word again, enjoyable to read. It's enjoyable yeah. to understand. It's not going to be, let's turn the first page over and then stick it on the shelf until it gathers dust. 
you actually get engaged in the story, I believe, anyway. And that was the whole thing. It took me a simple book, a short book, and people would think, ah, gosh, that you could knock that one out in a week, Jeremy, surely. Probably took me about 10 years over the whole yeah. uh, machination of it. One thing for sure was I wanted no technical words in it. Absolutely none. You won't find one accounting word in there. It's designed for people to pick up and use. Okay. I like the idea of that. And so, I, I do love the story that's, that's going on in there. So given the type of story it is, who was your, who was your target audience? So the target audience, interestingly, was for entrepreneurs and businesses and business managers. Because a lot of comments you get when you go into business is, we don't understand what Joe Bloggs is doing over there and the impact that's, that's having. We don't know why we've got to add another 1% to sales price. Why do we need to do that? What, what's the impact? I can make the sale much easier if the price is lower. Why do we need to go higher? So it was, it was engaging those people who, you know, I've come across in my career, you know, in consultancy and in interim roles as well. But you can only get things done if you sell that story of why it's important to, for them to understand and enjoy it. Mm. And that, that's the theme throughout the book. And I thought it was for those people alone, but more and more I've had compliments from finance directors, CFOs, because they have been able to pick up on the simple things that I put in the book and say, I got a bit sidetracked by doing all of these other things that I, I forgot to drive this message through to the rest of the business. Mm. So it's, it's in the book. If uh, it's, where should I start? Now, let me see. A simple thing to me, the starting point of any business, you've got to have a focus and a target. A lot of people, these are the entrepreneurs that we're talking about, go into business because they want to be, and I'll stick on the theme that I've got in the book, the best chocolate biscuit maker in the country, or they want to be the best widget maker, or they want to go into business because they want to save the environment. They've got a new, new product that's environmentally friendly. And that is fine, but you've got to have a target that is relevant to what you desire, but what you need. And what you need is to generate some cash to enable that to come through. So the first step is what I've put here is save me, which is to set up a set a target. And then you've got to make a plan to achieve that target. And then you've got to value what you expect you can get out of the product that you're selling. And then you've got to evaluate the cost of achieving that. So those are four simple steps in the word save. Yep. And then save me. Me is you've got to measure your activities regularly. Again, a lot of entrepreneurs don't really go in for that early stage. Mm. And then explain to everybody around you, the team, what the outcome is, where we're going, what happened to the cash, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a simple starting point for any business. Focus on getting the, the target. It's focus, and don't forget that focus. Right, right. So tell me a little bit about the, about the story that's going on. It's about making biscuits. 
chocolate biscuits? Uh, well, initially, it's it's Joe, 11-year-old. I think she's 11-year-old. I don't actually specify anywhere where she... She uh, wants to set up a business on her grandfather's doorstep because grandfather's got big orchards where they've got lots of apples. She wants to set up a business on this on the doorstep selling these apples because they're much better for the environment for, than buying them from the co-op or somewhere else because of the glow, of the carbon footprint. That's the starting point. So it's following her. And her partner is her teddy bear. Right. <laughs> uh, so you can see where uh, he's going. So the explanation to begin with is she gets so carried away that she doesn't understand about price. So she doesn't actually fix the price for the apples. She doesn't. She just asks the customers, you know, give me what you want. So that that's the, the, the first error she made. And her, her grandpa, who is her, a sponsor, if you like, says, you can have these apples, but to teach you a lesson, you're going to have to pay me for them. So to give you the discipline to understand, you've got to have a selling price. And that selling price has got to be greater, of course, than your costs. That's a very, very simple lesson. But how many businesses don't understand the costs of their product? (laughs) And I've been party to several. I've mentioned in previous episodes of the podcast and workshops we've run, uh, the business that I work for in ICI that hit trouble. And we had to look at the profitability of each product line, the profitability of each customer, and realize that the not very sexy product that didn't have what we thought was the high sales price, but had customers that never, ever complained and just bought ton after ton after ton of product, actually made all the profit. Yep. These lovely high-value, low-volume, sexy widgets, (laughs) like the, the plastic that went into the polymer in the 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 widget in the bottom of the can of Guinness uh, didn't make any money at all. In fact, it cost us so much to develop the thing in the first place. It was never, ever going to make any profit. Um, uh, It's a core lesson. And I've seen that so many times subsequently when working with clients. Did a big project in the NHS in a clinical services unit where they were giving all sorts of services to various parts of the health service. And they priced them all, but they were in a, in a semi-internal market. And they were starting to get into real trouble because some people were getting overpriced and some were getting un- underpriced. Hope business theoretically broke even or made the small profit that a unit in the NHS is allowed to do. But you know, everything was cross-subsidizing everything else. Yeah. And then you get into a vicious circle, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Uh, because... Somebody takes out the plum in the middle that was generating all the profit for the, the whole. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, whoever's buying that plum in the middle, retenders and find somebody else comes in with a far better price for doing the service than you did. Suddenly, your like the golden egg has disappeared, <laughs> and all you're left with is all the loss-making bits of the business. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So uh, the book goes on to talk about uh, the importance of the selling price, how uh, a 5% increase in price for her doubled her profit, for instance. Yeah. So that's the most important driver of any business. You increase the selling price and immediately, assume you don't get it wrong, 
you know, you don't, you increase the selling price to optimize what you can get, not to kill the market, of course. Mm. And then the second most important item is to increase your sales. Now, that could be by a, a traditional bog off offer, which is not very fashionable these days. But, you know, once you've got your customer there, you want to sell them more, even if the second item isn't quite as uh, rich on its margin. So make sure you get the customer's money whilst they're there. The customers are there because they love you and they love the product. So um, get them to buy something else that they'll love. They'll be happy about it for sure. Mm. So that's, that's the uh, that's magic step two is increasing the number of sales. And Joe, the uh, this our entrepreneur or friend here, learned that and and got it. But uh, then Mr. Ted, her teddy bear helper, persuaded her they should expand into new areas because he was getting bored. Have you ever heard of somebody on the board getting? Board. Oh yes. Oh yes. Done that. Got the t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a moral to this story. So they started making biscuits, uh, chocolate biscuits. Ah, that's where the chocolate biscuits come in. That's what, absolutely. It's been festering in my brain for twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> so they they put up the process. They uh, made these chocolate flapjacks. They made them in the mother's kitchen. They thought they were smart. They worked on the, what the selling price should be. So they learned that lesson. The start of chapter three or mindset three, magic set three. Uh, Joe woke up, woke up having a panic attack one morning because they'd sold all these new products. They'd sold all the original apples as well. But instead of making a profit, they made a huge loss. Ah. And, uh, the moral of the story is you can expand and you can diversify, but unless you get the control right for measuring the additional costs that go into that and uh, who's looking after the old business whilst you're focusing on the new business. So that's the salutary lesson there. Mm. Mm. Very simple example, but gosh, that's certainly something I've seen on a, a big scale. Yeah, and that's that. You know, that's the importance for the CFOs, isn't it, to understand the whole business and uh, to advise and help their peers. It, it's very difficult to stop a your <laughs> your CEO wanting to go and acquire another business. You know, Lesney Products. Going back to my Matchbox days, one of the reasons they went bust was they were making so much money with their die cost Matchbox toys that they thought, yeah. let's expand into something new. They thought, oh, we're in die casting, so let's find a, a company that die casts something. So they went up to the black country and bought a, an engine manufacturing company that die casts these huge blocks. <laughs> completely different market, yeah. completely different process as it happened. That you know, was one of their downfalls. Yeah, and certainly when you think business strategy, right, there are all sorts of models that say, is it existing product, different group of customers, or is it existing customers, different product? Those yeah. are the non-risky ones. If you're going different product, different customers, well, you're doubling, trebling, quadrupling the risk of the thing working. Mm. 
Yeah. So, Jeremy, fourth yes. magic step. Fourth magic step. Right. Well, fourth magic step is probably more traditional for CFOs, and that is control of costs. Yeah. And control of fixed uh, costs, especially overheads. Mm. Get that right, then you're winning. Yeah. One thing I'd like to say is that on the cost front, one should always be looking at the drivers to the costs in in business. The, you know, the CFO has got to be on top of their game all across the business because managers or directors who are con- running the operations get set in their ways. They are pr- perhaps doing a good job. And if they're doing a good job, that sometimes blinkers them to doing a better job. Mm. Uh, looking at processes that have changed, you know, in this age of technology, you know, so many processes uh, improved that you've got to keep up with your competitor because if your competitor is using them and reducing their selling price accordingly, then you could be on top of the game as a business to making sure that your costs are as good as, if not better, than your competitors. And it's it's a, a virtuous circle that you can uh, get it right, get reduce your your selling price because your costs are lower. Might even get more market share as a result. Mm. But you've and got to be pushing. You've got to be pushing the boat all the time. It's a, it's a continual process. Yeah, and I suppose one of the big lessons that I've learned over the years is that those things that we call as accountants fixed costs aren't really fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned yourself the what what are the drivers of cost um, so i've got this building i'm paying rent on the building and that's a fixed cost well actually why have you got a building oh it's because we've got to have this team of people and this team of people are associated with all the selling and administration or whatever of this particular product ah right so that building is actually a cost of that product right yeah. Six months later, oh, we've not. We're no longer making that product, <laughs> right? Okay. Well, we've got to get rid of the building, haven't we? Because we don't yeah. need it anymore. And that—that's the bit where the disconnect sometimes comes in. I think that you, know, you don't recognise that while yeah, it's fixed cost because you're paying five thousand pounds every month in rent. Um, it's actually a variable cost because you don't need it when you're not making the product anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely right. And yeah. what one thing is important, though, is is w- when you're restructuring businesses and uh, there are costs associated with running down that fixed cost because, you know, you've still got that property to get rid of, etc. It's vital that it doesn't confuse current thinking with current performance. You know, it's important. Like the government put good banks and bad banks into play when going through the cash crisis so that you don't confuse your operations for historical happenings. You've got to accept that that happened. Yes. But this is the cost of running this business now, and this is the best performance we can do. Mm. That's a different story. We'll have to handle that somehow, but don't try and load up the price of your current product with history. Exactly, exactly. So, Jeremy, sounds like Four Magic Steps to Double Your Profit is a great read. It is. 
I've got it on the desk. I flicked through it before we spoke. I designed saw to, designed to be and Teddy and things like that, and knew it would make an excellent story to talk about. So I am going to dig in there and actually read it. And of course, we'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Excellent, excellent. It's an easy read. It can be read in several sittings. It doesn't have to be all read at once. It's the ideal length to be read on a on a business flight if you're flying over to Europe or America or a train journey. And I do like business books that tell a story. I've read one or two of them and they're they're memorable. You realize because of what was going on in the story why certain things are important. And yeah, yeah it's a great way to write a book. So Jeremy, thank you very, very much for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much and uh, enjoy enjoy your read. <laughs>